I don't know if you could tell based on the music this morning, um, but we are entering into Advent. Wow, where are my notes? You guys are going to really want me to have my notes. There it is. Okay. Uh, We are uh, entering into our season of Advent. It's our tradition here at The Way to every year stop what we're doing and, and slow down and consider, remember that Christ has come. And look towards his return. Christmas, as much as as great as it is, and don't misunderstand me, I love Christmas. I I love celebrating the incarnation. Uh, But I think we miss out on some of the joy of Christmas if we think about what Jesus has done and disregard what Jesus is going to do. There is going to come a day that we will celebrate Christmas without any kind of distance between us and him. And man, I look forward to that day. That is going to be a glorious day. So it's our tradition to, to do that. We don't always slow down, or we don't always, let me say, that, say it differently, we don't always follow the traditional themes of hope, uh, joy, love, uh, those kind of things. We, we uh, sometimes break it up and, and look at it a little differently. And this year we are doing that as we study four songs uh, from the book of Luke. They're not all exactly songs in the way we might sing them, uh, but they're all four uh, prophecies or prophetic words given uh, I- I- as people experience the birth of Christ. Mary is who we'll start with today. In fact, it's Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55. We'll, we'll look at the song that she sang and the, in, in, uh, as she anticipated the birth of this uh, baby that she was going to have. We'll next week look at Zechariah, a priest who was going to experience a miraculous birth of his own as his wife was going to give birth. His wife, Elizabeth, was going to give birth. The angels sing on the night, and they fill the, the sky with song on the night of Jesus' birth. We'll, we'll look at that in three weeks. And then finally, on the week of Christmas, a, an old man who hung out at the temple a lot, waiting, anticipating the birth of his Savior. As he gets to see that come to fruition, he celebrates uh, by praising God. And so, so those are the four songs, and they're all in the book of Luke. Uh, for those of you that were here uh, just six months ago, you'll think, wow, we're back in Luke already. Yes, we are. I have been looking forward to the day that we could come and look at these passages in light of Christmas. I, I didn't do that while we were studying Luke uh, purposefully because we were already looking at Luke so deeply and intentionally. Uh, but now we're going to look at these passages in light of the fact that, that we are at the season of uh, a church season or season uh, culturally that we get to really celebrate and focus on the incarnation. So uh, let me just, let me just kind of set the stage and then we'll read the text. There's something about each one of these songs that we're going to study that, that we have in common with these people. Mary, jo- or Mary uh, Zachariah, the angels, and Simeon were all waiting Every one of them anticipating the time. They didn't know the time. They'd heard the promises. They knew the work that God was doing, but they didn't know the time. They were waiting. That's really what Advent is about. It's a season of anticipation and waiting, counting on God to fulfill the promises that he's made. And so while they were waiting for the first Advent, we have in common that we are waiting, anticipating, looking forward to God to fulfill his promises. We have the blessing of looking back and, and growing even greater confidence because he has come. And we can stand on that promise as we look for him to come again. And so that really settles, that really establishes the foundation of what I hope you'll, you'll, you'll glean, you'll gain as we study these passages. Just an excitement, an anticipation as we wait for the coming of our king. Well, let's read uh, together. Just follow along, if you will. Luke chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 39 and read all the way through the uh, end of her song in verse 56. It says this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And I'll just give you a little backstory so that you understand what's happening here. Mary has already heard from Gabriel that she is going to have a baby. She's already been, the Holy Spirit has already come down on her, already, uh, she is already pregnant with Jesus. 
the Son of God. She already knows. She's already had this conversation. She's already wrestled with the fact that she is a virgin who's never, she's never been with a man. It's a shocking reality for her. She can't believe it's going to happen. She doesn't understand how it's going to happen. But at the end of the conversation, she says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She humbles herself and gives herself in obedience to the Lord's, uh, the Lord's word. And, and, and she's not the only one experiencing this miraculous, uh, uh, preg- a miraculous pregnancy. The reality is Elizabeth, this woman who she's going to see, this woman who, who, who hears her uh, greeting and the baby leaps in her womb, Elizabeth was old, old, old. She was past the years of being able to be able to give birth. It was, she'd been barren all her life. She had, she had not been able to conceive her and her husband. This would have been a, a difficult thing for them to endure in their culture and context. This was a, I mean, you, you know what it is if you have friends who have struggled conceiving. If you have friends who have uh, not been able to conceive, you know what it is, the burden that people carry when they're unable. And we live in a time where where, where, where it's, it's kind of pushed off. It's, it's not as big a deal, but this would have been the central identity of this woman. And I'm not saying that our, our, our women, our families don't struggle when they can't conceive. Don't misunderstand, but it was heightened then. It, it was a huge thing for them. It would have been a mark on her. Zechariah is visited by an angel as he's doing his service in the temple. He's, he, he's told by, uh, by, by an angel that you're going to have a baby and he can't believe it. And his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant and she's about six months pregnant when Mary comes and visits her. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the baby, who we'll later find out is John the Baptist, leaps, celebrates. It's interesting to me, the very first celebration of the incarnation is an infant in the womb. I think it's okay if we spend some time celebrating Christmas, right? I mean, if John the Baptist did it before he was born, I think it's okay if we celebrate today. The baby, so let's go back to it. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. So she now speaks inspired words. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth has no idea what's happened with Mary yet. She doesn't understand. She's not privy to the knowledge, but the Holy Spirit has inspired her to to celebrate. The the second person celebrating the the birth of the baby Jesus is, is Elizabeth. Why is the mother of my Lord, why why should she come to me? Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let me me just point this out before we move on. We we aren't going to have a lot of time to come back to it. Blessed is she who believed. We, we could go back into Mary's story and we'd see how she humbled herself before the Lord. Hey, let, let it be as he says it's going to be. She is marked by faith. She is a believer. She has trusted the Lord. And he has worked in her. And Mary said, this is verse 46, beginning to, to, to where she begins to respond to the realities of what has happened. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my, in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his great mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And when we first went through this series, when we, when we first went through these passages, I made the point, and this is almost three years ago, I made the point that I was thankful that we weren't walking through them at Christmas because I don't think Luke wrote this passage simply to prop up our Christmas celebrations. But because they do speak to why we celebrate at Christmas, they have become entrenched and woven together with our Christmas celebrations. Luke's point is not to give us a holiday to celebrate. His point is to prove the identity of Christ. In fact, the first four chapters demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior sent from God. That was Luke's purpose was to give Theophilus confidence that this man, Jesus, was the Son of God, the Savior sent from God. You can see that as you begin to study those four chapters. We were able to see that clearly as we separated it out from Christmas. Now, that being said, I'm grateful, and actually I've been anticipating, looking forward to the day that we can come back and read these passages in light of Christmas. I'm grateful that we get to go back and study these as part of our Advent and Christmas celebration because if you think about it, Luke did such an outstanding job of proving his point that if you're going to celebrate a birthday, it should be the birthday of the God who put on flesh and was born of a virgin. If we are going to remember the day of someone's birth, it should be the God who added the nature of humanity to himself so that he could live as our Savior. Now, I I like my birthday, don't misunderstand. You can send me a card. You can buy me a gift. I'll accept it. And now I'll say thank you. But my birthday pales in comparison to the day that our, our savior was born. This is the day that's worth remembering. This is the day that gives us hope to look forward to. The the, the reality is, the unfortunate reality, is that most of the people that we know, they'll they'll tag these verses onto their Christmas celebration as some afterthought. They'll they'll they'll, they'll follow their traditions, their parties, their their, their spending time with people, the feasting with family. They'll they'll, they'll set up their Christmas holiday, and then, just for a few moments, they'll settle in and read the Scripture and think on Jesus. They'll tag Jesus onto their holiday. Unfortunately, that's not just outside the church, but it's real within the church. We attend our parties, we exchange our gifts, we eat a lot, and we, and we do every bit of it without ever really even giving much thought to why any of it's worthwhile. The reality is this. If the virgin doesn't give birth to the Son of God, the Savior sent from God, then there's really no reason to gather and have a big meal. Gifts won't make us happy. There's no joy in this season except some facade. And that all falls apart, it all crumbles. When January 2nd hit and that the the bills come in because we spent too much. The holiday is over and we got to go back to work. Life goes back to normal. And the facade of a false sense of joy falls apart. See, we, we can slow down right here and right now in this moment. And remember that this birthday, that this event, that the incarnation gives value and reason to celebrate that doesn't cease ever providing joy. Because on January 2nd, the celebration of the incarnation continues to pay off and continues to be worthwhile because as we remember that there was a day that he was born, we have reason to look forward to the day that he is coming back. And so we slow down in this season for this reason so that we can't just tag Jesus on. 
to the celebration. But so that, so, so that, so that Jesus becomes foundational. So, so that he becomes the very formation of our celebration. That he becomes intrinsically entwined in our celebration. Because if not for this miracle... And we really don't have any reason to celebrate. But because of this miracle, we should be throwing the best of parties. We should be the most joyous of people. So the miracle of Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth gives us all the reason we need to worship God with abandon, to rejoice in the reality that Christ has come, and to hope in the reality that Jesus Christ our Lord is coming again. And I know that I'm putting more in there. I'm just excited about it. I, I know that there's more I'm saying than what's in that point, but the reality is that that is the truth. Because the virgin got pregnant... God worked in power to make that happen. But because the virgin carried to term and she gave birth and and this baby that was born is the son of God. Our lives, not, not, not just a season, our lives should be marked by these things. And that's what we see happening with Mary. As she sings her song, as she proclaims God's praises. Traditionally, it's called the Magnificent because the the, the very first phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord. She is overcome with the reality of what is happening. She's She's not celebrating God because she sees Elizabeth. She's not celebrating God because Elizabeth's baby is kicking in the womb. She is celebrating God because what they have just pronounced and just affirmed is the reality that she, a virgin, is giving birth to the Lord God of heaven. God had been silent for generations. He had not spoken to Israel. They, they, I would imagine that they likely are wondering what happened to him. The prophets had not spoken for hundreds of years. And now when he begins speaking and obviously working among his people, it starts right here with two women who shouldn't even be pregnant. And Mary overflows with joy. She, she overflows with worship. She overflows with hope. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my God, in God, my savior. She is so moved. She is so overwhelmed. She can't help but worship this worthy God. I I need to say this before we go any further. I need to qualify this. This did not make God worthy of worship. He was already worthy to be worshiped. God has been worthy of our worship since he first said, let there be light. And when he made the waves quit kicking up on the ground and brought the dry land up out of the sea, when he first formed man and breathed life into us, he was worthy of worship. But because of this work, because of what he did here, he showed himself, he showed his identity and he showed his, his worthiness in this work. You see, certainly Mary became aware of God's worthiness of worship in the reality of what just had been shown to her. We worship in Christ because of who God is. She she shows us that. Overwhelmed with the reality of, of what's happened, my soul magnifies the Lord. She begins to identify this God that she worships. She worships him because of who he is. He is Lord. is supreme in authority. She's already said to him, and, and you can look at it. You can see it for yourself in verse 38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. He is, he is divine. He is supreme in authority over her. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And, to, and the angel departed her. He, he, she is not looking at God and saying, you must act how I say you must act. She is saying, he is Lord. I, I am molding my life. I am humbling myself before him. And then she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, 
He's divine in nature, transcendent of, uh, over all times and places, worthy of praise and worship. This is the divine being. And God, my Savior, He is Lord, He is God, He is Savior. This statement, oh, this, this claim from her implies the reality that she recognizes her need for salvation. It's unfortunate that there's a tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition has, has, has exalted Mary to a place where they would t- tell you that she doesn't need a Savior. Her, her own words in, in the moment where she's inspired by God in, in worship to profess and, and prophetically say these things. She is recognizing that He is Lord, He is God, He is Savior, He is hers. And God, my Savior. And she goes on, telling us, worshiping who He is. For He has looked on the humblest state of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty, speaking of His power, speaking of His capacity, His capability. You just refer back to what's happened here. These, these two women who are now standing face to face, standing there pregnant, shouldn't be pregnant. A woman who is barren all her life, who is past the age of childbearing years, is pregnant. And if that's not astonishing enough, I mean, because it could be a fluke. I mean, it just could be. I don't know. Maybe she took extra vitamins. I, I, something. But Mary has never been with anyone in that way. Now, I know we, we, we need to be cautious here. And I don't, I don't want to be crass. And I don't, I don't want to cause trouble for our parents in the room. But can we slow down and just consider for a minute that a virgin is pregnant? How easy is it to just pass by that reality? To just disregard the act of power that was required for this girl, this young woman, to become pregnant? How astonishing is that? And yet, we can look right past it because it's become so normal in our celebration. He is mighty. And these really, honestly, if, I mean, not that there's not some amazing reality that God put life where there was no life before in the wombs of these women. But, but that almost seems small in comparison to the reality that he spoke the creation into existence from Nothing. God spoke and light didn't have a choice but to shine. God spoke and and and, and what was chaos and and, and, and unordered comes into order. The land comes up out of the dry ground. The sky is separated from the waters below and the the waters above. The, 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 The reality of life beginning to exist. Shocking reality. From nothing. And, and this is just another sampling of his power. We see his power all the way across the scripture. Just glimpses of his power to the, to the point where we look to the end and his power to make all things new. To, 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 to restore what he created, what we have broken and what we have destroyed and, and what he's brought under futility because of our sin. He is going to make it all things new where death has no place, where, 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 where peace exists completely. Where the sun doesn't need to shine because Jesus will be the light. He is the Alpha and the Omega as Billy prayed before. He is the one whose power propels and holds together all things. Our God, this God of Mary and and this God of Elizabeth... It's the God of the world, and He is mighty. So mighty. And He's called us to trust His power over our own, to depend on His power over our own. She continues 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She's worshiping because God is holy. He's perfect. There's no sin in him, no shadow or darkness. The reality is when when the scriptures speak of God as holy, there's this distinctness to him. He is completely distinct from the created order. He is completely separate. He is different, but it speaks also also to his, his purity. The works of righteousness. Everything he does is good and right. There's nothing he does that is wrong. He never wakes up in a bad mood. Never, never gets frustrated because someone cuts him off. He isn't bipolar in the sense that I'm not trying to make fun of people who are bipolar, but the reality is you know that, that, that when you, you struggle with this bipolar, that there's a time when you are frustrated and there's a time when you're overexcited and, and, and the people who you interact with don't ever know where you're going to be until they begin to experience that. We know who God is and we always know who we deal with. He is always the same. He is holy, always holy, primarily holy. This is the attribute that is emphasized repeatedly in the scripture. When the angels sit around him and sing, they don't sing power, power, power. They sing holy, holy, holy. This doesn't diminish his power. Don't misunderstand. It doesn't diminish the immensity of his power, but it elevates the the beauty of his holiness. It's beautiful. And I think if Mary quit singing right here, this would be a scary thing. If she didn't have another thing to say about who God is, then we should run and hide. But she picks up in verse 50, you can look at it and see, and his mercy. His mercy is for those who fear him. This powerful, holy God who is Lord over all things, supreme in authority, who is uh, uh, um, divine, who, who is creator of all things, who is the Savior. He is the Savior because he is merciful. She points this out. She shows us that he is merciful. And the reality is it's not mercy that's just given out willy-nilly. Like he's not, 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 not just throwing it around as if, it, if it's nothing. It's valuable. Merciful to those who fear him. We've talked a lot about the fear of God as we've studied through the book of Ecclesiastes. We, we wrestle with that reality. We wrestle with understanding why it is that when the Bible says fear God, that that makes sense. Because when we think of fear, we think quake, we think terror. I love this verse. Because when we find the fear of God, that's where we find his mercy. The moment we begin to quake before him is the moment that we begin to find the reality of his compassion and his desire to work justice for us. You see, mercy is, 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 some people have said mercy is, is not giving us what we deserve. And that's true. But what, what that leaves out is the fact that in his mercy, he also did for us also settled for us the injustice that we had caused. You see, his mercy is bringing us a savior, his son. His mercy isn't just keeping something back. It's doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's paying the price that we couldn't pay. It's paying the bill that we incurred. See, it's by his grace, his his unmerited favor on us that we get to enjoy the good from him. But it's by his mercy that he has sent his son. It's by his great mercy that the bill for our debt has been satisfied. Because he had compassion on us. 
And he worked out justice for us. And in grace, he applied the righteousness of Christ to us. He, he is Lord. He is God. He is Savior. He is mighty. He is holy. And He is merciful. And for these reasons, because Mary sees who God is in the, in the, in the pregnancy, in the miracle of her pregnancy, in the reality that this baby that's going to be born is going to be the Son of God, the Savior, of, of the, the Savior sent from God. She worships Him. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we cannot take part in a Christmas celebration that denies the worship of our God. I'm not saying we can't be present. Don't, don't, we should be present in these places so that we can point people to the reality that God is worthy of worship. And we find it clearly demonstrated to us in the incarnation of Christ that we would even consider Christmas without the worship of God. How could we? How can we? Why do we? Well, the beauty is that she doesn't just stop on the reality of who God is. She rejoices in Christ and we can rejoice in Christ because of what God has done. Mary's song is roughly can be divided into two halves. First, she sings about what God has done for her. And then she sings about what God has done for his people. The reality is that when you begin to compare these two halves, you can see that the, even those things that she sang about herself are the same things that he's doing for his people. And so we can apply every one of them to us. And so should we go back to the beginning. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Because he has looked on my humble estate. He, he's mindful of her. He thinks on her. He, he has considered her. And the same is true for every one of us. Mary was a young lady from a, from a no-name town. And she was a no-name person in this no-name town. And yet she becomes the one. She is chosen by God to, to carry the baby. Who were you that God would choose you to be saved? That God would choose you to be a member of his kingdom? He is mindful of you. He considers you. This is David was considering the majesty of God writing in the Psalms. And, and he is so moved by this. This is what he says. He says, when I look at the heavens, Psalm 8, 3, 3, 4 is the verse. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, you see the majesty he's, he's getting at. What is man that you are mindful of him? In contrast, I mean, what, what, what is man that, that you're mindful of him? Look at the majestic creation that you put together. Look at all you've done. Look at what you're capable of. And you would consider me. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This isn't something to, to move us to, to, to condemnation and guilt. This is what should lead us in rejoicing. God, the, 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 the Lord, the Savior, the Mighty One, the Holy One, the Merciful One is mindful of you. You are someone He considers. He thinks on. And He doesn't just sit up there and think about night. No, I just like that. I really just like that person. No, he moves. He's active. That's her very next point that he, he blessed her. He's mindful of me. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary recognizes the very reality of the blessed position that she holds, this honored position, this fortunate position. What, what a fortunate role. Now, we've got to deal with it. I've got to say this. Because of the world we live in, every blessed role, every fortunate role that we get to walk in comes with some amount of weight. Remember the time and age that Mary lived in as she begins to show and she's unwed. 
kind of shame can that bring? You know, in my, in my mom's day and age, they would, they, would, they would send daughters to schools and other places so that they wouldn't have to deal with, the families wouldn't have to deal with shame. Imagine what it was like in a moralistic culture like the day of the Pharisees when Jesus was born. This wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be without struggle. It wasn't going to be like just a cakewalk. But she still recognizes that this is God's blessing on her. Maybe we're not blessed to to be able to give birth to to the Savior of the world. Some of us, that would really be a miracle for some of us, right? Like, man, be, whoa, how'd that happen? <laughs> it was a shock. But are we less blessed? In, in Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that we were by nature children of wrath. But God, in his great mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. At the end of chapter 2, he's gone from the beginning of chapter 2 where he's calling us children of wrath, dead in our sins and trespasses. And he comes to the end of chapter 2 and and he's got this whole new perspective. We're no longer longer, uh, strangers and aliens. We are citizens of the kingdom. And then it's so rich a, a reality that he's mixing metaphors. We're not just citizens of a kingdom. We're members of a household. We are not just, we are no longer sinners. We are saints. We're not just children in a kingdom. We are children of the king. You see, we have all the rights that every citizen in the kingdom has, but we aren't just people floating around outside the castle. We belong in the throne room next to our father. We we have access to walk into him and speak before him. He hasn't crushed us. He hasn't stood opposed to us. He says, come in to me. You belong here. You are Blessed. Isn't that a reason to rejoice? And, and, and this next one is the, the next one where she says that, that from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Everybody's going to recognize how fortunate Mary was. Again, it's unfortunate that the Roman Catholics have done what they've done. And they've put her in a place where she doesn't belong. But we still recognize that she had a fortunate role, an honored role. For he who is mighty, it goes on verse uh, 49, for he who is mighty has done great things. You are blessed. He has done great things. He has worked his power on your behalf. He didn't use his power to crush you. He used his power to bring you to life. He didn't use his power to send you away. He used his power to bring you close. He didn't use his power to condemn you. He used his power to forgive you. You see, this is the beauty of the incarnation is that he is coming to do this work by his power to do for us what we can't do. And I can't imagine why we would simply just tag it on for a few minutes during a Christmas season when it should motivate our worship and our rejoicing every day of our life. Brothers and sisters, we should walk in Advent celebration because this is the reality that we walk in every day. But I am thankful There's someone as forgetful as me who tends to get caught up in the troubles of day-to-day life is reminded every year that our Christ has come. And there's reason to rejoice because of who he is. And there is reason to rejoice because of what he has done. And this next half, it, she goes on, not just speaking about the things that she, he's done for her that can, we can see play out and be applied to us but specifically works that he has done for his people. He's brought down the proud and powerful. Scripture's clear. God opposes the proud. And you can see it, all three of the things that she highlights here, all three of the things that she says here, bring some level of of, um, punishment and some level of blessing to his people. Punishment for those who would oppose him in pride and arrogance, who would stand apart from him in their own wealth. But blessing for the humble... Blessing for the poor. He's brought down the proud and powerful. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. This quote's not on the screen. I just wanted to share it. I came across it. wanted to share it. He says, Can you not see that everything that man boasts in, in his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by the Son of God. 
We've talked a lot about wisdom over these last weeks as we've considered the book of Ecclesiastes. And these last three weeks has been focused specifically on the, on the benefit and the blessing of wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom that comes from God. It's the knowledge and understanding that comes from knowing God. It's, it's not the ethics of the world that make us acceptable to God. If we live by those ethics, we will be destroyed. It's his ethic that he satisfied through his Christ. The reality is if we live in this, this state of arrogance and pride where we seek to keep ourselves distant from him or push him off because we don't need him, seek our own power, seek after our own wealth so that we, we can make our own way, that is a dangerous place. Because they are sent away empty. Because they are scattered in their thoughts. Their foolishness will be proven by his wisdom. He's done this in his might at the exact same time that he is exalting the humble. The, the humble, the humility of Mary is one example. But over and over again in the scripture, we find that this humility, this, this right understanding of who we are before God we all have value because we are created in his image. But a right understanding that I don't need to wallow in guilt and, 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 and just consider myself as a worm in the dirt any longer because he has said you are fully, completely forgiven. There is now no condemnation. You see, if I continue to wallow in the dirt and continue to just walk around and think, oh, I just got to learn how to forgive myself. That's disregarding the forgiveness of God. It's disregarding what the gospel has done. It's disregarding the new identity that you have in Christ. But I also can't stand in a place where I disregard the fact that I was a sinner. Deserving of condemnation. Deserving of being sent to hell for all eternity. I can't disregard the fact that God had to save me. Because apart from him, I am a worm in the dirt. Apart from him, I should be crushed and sent away. See, I walk in this new place. We walk in this new place of humility, recognizing who we are because of God. Saint, I am holy because he is holy. Child, I am his child because he adopted me. I am loved because he has expressed his love to me. There is nothing that can change it. But if I don't walk in that place, it's a disregarding of what he's done in the gospel. And it's as bad as if I'm doing it as a Christian seeking some false humility that, that walks in guilt that's no longer mine. Or if I stand in a place and act like I don't need his help or his forgiveness. Both are wrong. Both are arrogance, but he exalts the humble and he has filled the hungry. She says that the rich go away empty, but he has filled the hungry. Those of us who come to him, not seeking satisfaction from anyone or anything but him, he fills us up. You want satisfaction, you find it in God, our Father, and the incarnation of Christ, the, 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 the miracle birth of Mary, the, or the miracle pregnancy of Mary, Mary the, the birth of the Son of God and the Savior of, uh, sent from God. That's where you find satisfaction. But you need to see this. You need us to understand this. this. is a point I made the last time we walked through this passage. And we need to grasp it. Because God is who he is, we can rejoice in the things he does. Because God has done what he's done, what, we can rejoice in who he is. We can rejoice in who he is because he is merciful, because he has worked his power on our behalf. We can worship who he is because of what he's done. If he hadn't been merciful, if he hadn't saved us, not only could we not worship him because we are incapable of it, there would be, we wouldn't be worshiping him. We would be running in, in fear. Mary's emphasis over and over is the good work that God does. Who he is and what he's 
done. That brings us worship and joy. Let me just show you real quickly the hope. You see, because we have hope in Christ because of what God will accomplish. This isn't just for a season. This is till he completes it. Every day from here on out. There are a lot of things I could point to. Let me just highlight two quickly. The first one, I, didn't, I couldn't even figure out how to word this, so I'm just going to kind of stumble through it, and, and, and you'll see it. But the second one will be on the screen. The first one, she's speaking in past tense. He, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, right? Like she's saying something that's already been accomplished. And many people would say, oh, but, but she's speaking about past tense events. Like she's looking back into history, and she's speaking about past tense events. And I agree, she is. But I also believe and agree with those who would say that she's also speaking about future events. She is speaking prophetically in a way that demonstrates to God these things have already occurred. It's the same thing as when you're sitting, sitting playing chess with somebody. Don't know if you play chess. I don't. I just have seen it happen. Somebody says, checkmate. Sorry. <laughs> they, don't, they don't need to actually move their piece. They don't need to actually go across the board and, and, and take the king. As soon as you say checkmate, the game is over. God has said checkmate on the lives of his people. He said, you are mine. Now, I know in chess that we think that's a bad thing to lose. But, hey, this is winning in God's economy. When he says there's no escaping me because he is God, because he is merciful, because he has worked his power on our behalf, because he exalts the humble, we actually win. It's certain, but the reality the same is true for the proud and for the wealthy who depend on themselves and will not trust God. As Mary looks forward, there are kings that will be unseated. In God's terms, it's already occurred. It's certain. That's the biblical perspective of hope. God already exists in the future. He is not bound by time like we are. What he has decreed will occur. And we can speak of it today as if it's already happened. That's exactly what Mary's doing. And that gives us what I think is the, the, the very purpose. I want to see this, this hope is that his work is eternal. The very final phrase that she, she utters in her song, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's the most amazing thing. There is a reality that, that, that she is now speaking of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And she can't be speaking simply about a physical people who are supposed to obey a law because he has already promised if you don't, I will, I will curse you. You won't remain in the land. Not only that, but the whole book of Luke demonstrates to us as you walk your way through the book of Luke, and we saw it just a, a few months ago, that in the end of the book, Jesus denounces the old covenant and begins to, 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 to demonstrate that he came to fulfill what was there, to live the perfect life, to be the perfect Jew, so that he could stand as the Savior to all people from all nations and establish a new covenant with a spiritual people of Abraham. You go further, you could read in Paul where he begins to talk about that Abraham's descendants are not physical people, but those who come in faith. There is a reality that he is speaking as much about you and about me. Mary is singing as much about you and me as those who were in that day believing that God was sending a Savior. You see, she believed. And because she did, she's a daughter of Abraham. And we believe, and because we do, we are sisters of Mary, uh, brothers and sisters to Mary in Christ. We are his descendants. The beauty of this is the most amazing truth. If he exalts you, no one can humiliate you. No one can humiliate you. No one can remove your identity in Christ. No one can say you are not his child. No one can say you're a sinner instead of a saint. No one can look at you and condemn you any more because he has exalted you. His work is eternal. If he holds you in his hand, no one can take you out of it. You are safe and secure. If he has loved you, no one can remove you from that love. No one can change the fact that God has loved you. Not even 
You have the power to change the reality of his love for you. His love is too great for that. His love is eternal and unconditional. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Your bad things turn out for good. He's, he's actually making reference to Romans chapter 8, but it sticks with me. It comes back to me. And I think it fits here. Your bad things turn out for good. Your good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come because God's works are eternal. We don't look at today as the definition of what God is doing. We look to the day that he's coming to fulfill and the best days are yet to come. His work is for that eternal moment where we would stand in his presence, no longer, no longer separated by dim glass, but able to see him with our own eyes, to touch our savior with our own hands, to look on the scars that he carried because of the cross. All because he took on flesh all because he humbled himself and allowed himself to be born to a virgin laid in a manger. A king who came and was born to paupers. Our best things are yet to come. Now today you can leave out of here and you can go on about your Christmas celebration do it the same way you've always done it. And if Christ is central to that celebration, I'm happy for you. I would say go do more of that. <laughs> but if, like so many of us, we get caught up in the trappings and the events, the busyness that comes with the season, I would just encourage you. Consider Christ, his miraculous birth, his identity, who he is, what he's done, and the hope he brings. In the, one of the Advent devotionals that I referred on Realm, December 1, Paul Tripp uh, starts this way. It is a wonderful, mysterious, hard to grasp and beyond the scope of our normal reasoning story. But when you get it, when you come to fully understand the purpose and implications of this story, you will sing too. See, if you'll just sit down and consider who he is, what he's done, and, and what he's going to finish when he gets it done, you, you don't need a season to celebrate. The gifts, the meals, the, 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 the parties... They're all the result of the joy that you have. They flow out of this new foundation, this new formation that the gospel breeds in us. No longer do you have to put on a face. Do you have to play, a, play an act? It's a natural expression of someone who knows that God, the Lord, has come to save them. And by his power and through his might, He's done just that. Not for a moment, but for all eternity. That to me is worth celebrating. That to me is worth slowing down and thinking deeply and intentionally on. Let's pray.